This is a crawdad song. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Bing, boo. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Crawdad man done past your gate. Welcome to Crawdads and Taters, Red State Rebels. We are writers, activists, and leftists who come from two of the reddest states in the country, Oklahoma and Idaho. When we say red, we may be referring to the indigenous, socialist, and labor histories of these states, or the right-wing fanaticism that they're known for today. As rebels, we use a leftist lens to analyze current events, political issues, and revolutionary movements that support our collective survival. So so my crawl, that's three, four, dime. Your crawl, that's not as fat as mine. Hey, taters. Hi, crawdads. How's it going? Good. How How's are you? you? I'm good. How's your day? It's good. Yeah. Excited to be recording another episode of Crawdads and Taters. Right. This is episode two, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. All right, so what are we going to be talking about today? Well, I thought we should talk a little bit about um, the HR1 bill that's being proposed in Congress and, and talk about voting rights and voter suppression more broadly. Sounds yeah. like an important topic. Yeah, I think it's probably pretty important. <laughs> but I, I feel like we should just be honest and have a little disclaimer here that we're both getting used to this podcasting thing, and it's it's really kind of awkward for us at least for me. I've spent a lot of time writing political articles, but I've never done a, a, a podcast before. So like learning how to turn a script into something more conversational is a little challenging. Yeah. And we spent a long time on this script. Yeah, so <laughs> if it sounds a little scripted, that's because it is. Yeah. <laughs> we're working on it. We're working on it. We're trying to make it better. I think we're going to get there. Yeah. I, yeah. I believe in us. Uh, I do too. So let's talk about this HR1 issue. But before we start, we first wanted to apologize for something we overlooked in episode one. We were talking about the mainstream media's portrayal of the Black Panther movement. And we did what a lot of people in the media do when they talk about the Black Panthers and the murder of Fred Hampton. And that's that we totally um, omitted the murder of activist and Black Panther, Mark Clark. Yeah, and he was a very important part of the Black Panther movement in Illinois. He was the first to die in the attack on Fred Hampton's house on December 4th, 1969. When the police arrived, he was on guard. The police fired blindly through the door, and Mark was killed instantly by a bullet through the heart. He was only 22 years old at the time. He'd been active in the NAACP before joining the Black Panther Party and organizing the Peoria chapter. <laughs> and we're just really sorry to have admitted his name in the last episode when we were discussing the state-sponsored murders of that day. Today, we're introducing two new segments to our show, which we'll feature in future episodes. Two new segments? Tell me about them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we're uh, calling these segments the anti-fascist and the anti-Brunchian actions. Yay! <laughs> the uh, first segment I want to introduce is the anti-fascist action, where we'll be looking at recent efforts of the far right, 
A.E. Tucker Carlson, the Republican Party, <laughs> white supremacists, Donald Trump, uh, Bolsonaro, mm-hmm. fascists in general, mm-hmm. in their efforts to destroy democracy, human rights, and create a white nationalist, ultra-capitalist, authoritarian state. Cool. So that's the anti-fascist action. Yes. Cool. And the other lens we're going to be introducing is the anti-Brunchen action, where we challenge what leftists call brunch liberalism. In other words, the liberal ideologies that go back to sleep and go back to brunch when Republicans are out of office. So in this segment, we'll be looking at the neoliberal establishment, democratic responses to the far right, and the way the ruling class of both parties serve to kneecap and destroy any real opposition movements that might otherwise redistribute wealth and bring political power to the people. By framing the news through these two lenses, we hope to break down the corporate media-fueled divisions of right versus left and look at the news more from a lens of class consciousness, the ruling elites versus the working class and the poor. In other words, the deeper structural divisions that keep this system intact really aren't left to right, but top to bottom. But they do allow you to go to brunch. They do. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't like brunch? (laughs) Apparently I like us. brunch. <laughs> I mean, I honestly love brunch. And, you know, I, and to be totally honest, like, you know, there's, there are elements in, in both of our backgrounds. I mean, we're both white. We're both, you know, middle economic, you know, strata. And I think there's, there's a temptation to go to brunch. And I think it's, you know, it's something I personally have to fight in myself, like that, there are bigger structural issues I need to be paying attention to all the time. All right. Well, I'm going to let you record the rest of the episode while I go off and get some brunch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So really (laughs) what we want to do with these two segments, the anti-fascist and the anti-brunching segment is to really look at the two wings of the same bird, the left and right wings of the oligarchy. When we see the news through this lens, we can begin to answer the question of why here in the United States, we can't have nice things like universal health care, a living wage, a federal jobs guarantee, country that's not at war, livable planet. Um, a society free of police violence. Equality. Yeah, pretty much any, any basic human right. Yeah, and so these segments will hopefully kind of draw a picture of what's happening here to prevent us from having a better society. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make a little correction because um, just a minute ago, I said something about being middle income as I was trying to sort of name the white privilege that we have. And, um, and it's very true that we, we both have white privilege, but, um, Burian just enlightened me to the fact that we are not middle income. Yeah, middle income is a kind of a vague term in of itself. Yeah. But I believe... Middle class. We're not middle yeah, class. Middle class, middle income, whatever they're calling it nowadays. Yeah. How is that defined? Do you know? Currently, I think Joe Biden was referring to middle income as being up to $450,000 a year. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's not us. Definitely not, not where anywhere close. No. So, if so, where's the where's the bottom of that range? Do you know? 
I would guess between 100 and 200 thousand okay. a year. So like 100k to 450k, somewhere in there is considered middle class. Middle income, middle class. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's not us. So I guess we're still working class for the we're, sake of this podcast. We'd qualify somewhere in there. Yeah. White working class. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Well, we just thought that was important to name. And now let's move on to today's anti-fascist action. Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp has signed a sweeping elections bill that civil rights groups are blasting as the worst voter suppression legislation since the Jim Crow era. This comes just months after Democrats won two Senate seats in Georgia, and Joe Biden became the first Democratic presidential candidate to win the state in 28 years. The bill grants broad power to state officials to take control of election management from local and county election boards. It also adds new voter ID requirements, severe Severely limits mail ballot drop boxes and rejects ballots cast in the wrong precinct. One provision would even make it a crime to hand out food or water to voters waiting in line at polling places. Voting rights experts say the bill's specifically designed to make it harder for African Americans to vote. Governor Kemp signed the bill in private, surrounded by six white men. This comes amidst a nationwide push by Republicans to restrict the vote after Donald Trump lost in November. Since the election, Republican state lawmakers have introduced over 250 bills in 43 states to limit voter access. Oh, and by the way, since Amy first made that recording, Democracy Now! later reported that not only was Governor Kemp in private surrounded by six white men, but he was also sitting underneath a large painting of a slave plantation just for effect. So anyway, here's the newly elected Georgia State Senator Raphael Warnock responding. We are witnessing right now a massive and unabashed assault on voting rights, unlike anything we've ever seen since the Jim Crow era. This is Jim Crow in new clothes. Since the January election, some 250 voter suppression bills have been introduced by state legislatures all across the country, from Georgia to Arizona, from New Hampshire to Florida, using the big lie of voter fraud as a pretext for voter suppression. The same big lie that led to a violent insurrection on this very capital the day after my election. So just a little correction, since Warnock gave that speech, the number of bills has increased to 360 bills. 360 voter suppression bills? Yeah, 360 voter suppression bills in 47 states. Wow. Also, on March 26th, Georgia House Representative Park Cannon, a sitting congresswoman, knocked on Governor Kemp's door to talk to him about the bill he signed in secret. And she was arrested and dragged through the Capitol in handcuffs by several Georgia state troopers. Here's House Representative Erica Thomas. But you're going to tell me that you arrested a city state representative for nothing. She didn't do anything but knock on the governor's door. I'm done. I'm so done. I'm so done. Protect and serve who? Oh my God. That is so sick. It's just so ugh, sick. Anyway, 
And then Senator Warnock responds to what happened to House Representative Erica Thomas. I saw a state representative knocking on the door yep. mm-hmm. of the governor, and she was arrested. Yep. Meanwhile, we saw a violent insurrectionist attack on the United States Capitol. And uh, police officers died in that case. Yep. And I want to know what makes her actions so dangerous. It is that big lie uh, that is the fuel for these terrible voter suppression laws that we see coming out of the state of Georgia. And we've had to push hard against the big lie uh, and make sure that we secure the democracy for all of our citizens. So here you have the state of our, quote, democracy, where armed, angry, right-wing white nationalists can storm the U.S. Capitol, killing people, risking hundreds of lives, and terrorizing the nation. But if a sitting African-American House representative merely knocks on the governor's door inside her state capitol, she's hauled off by Georgia state troopers and arrested immediately. Fascist action. Yep. But looking at the big picture, you know, more than 360 bills have been introduced in 47 states just since 2020 that would limit voting access, impose stricter voter ID requirements, slash voter registration opportunities, enable more aggressive voter roll purges, cut hours that polling places are open, make it a crime to hand out food and water at polling places, and the Heritage Foundation plans to spend at least $10 million on efforts to tighten election security laws in eight key swing states. So clearly, the neo-fascist white supremacist power regime has had it with any level of democracy in Georgia. Especially after the Georgia Senate race upset, Governor Kemp is now going to defend his illegal post by any means necessary. And he wouldn't even be governor in the first place if it weren't for his own election fraud, not only massive voter suppression and documented purging of voter rolls, but he also appointed himself the overseer of the gubernatorial election in which he was running against Stacey Abrams, which I'm pretty sure is illegal to oversee your own election if not highly legally questionable. That sounds illegal to me, but I'm not a lawyer, so (laughs) who knows in this country? (laughs) Anything goes. Well, apparently if these voter suppression laws pass, anything really will go. (laughs) Anyway, the uh, simple fact of the matter is that these Republicans understand they can't win without using massive voter suppression. Yep. I think it's really significant that the first of these bills was passed in Georgia, you know, the state that gave the election to Biden and the Senate to the Democrats. Mm. You know, Georgia is a traditionally red state, and the fact that it flipped this time around shows the vulnerability of the GOP in the Deep South. Mm-hmm. The last time Georgia went Democratic was in 1992, when Ross Perot's third party run threw a wrench into the works. Before that, it went to Jimmy Carter twice. Georgia went to Jim, Jimmy Carter twice? Yes, back in the you know, 70s. Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. It was his home state after all. Yeah, so as you can see right now, Georgia flipping blue is a real threat to the GOP's southern firewall. Yeah, totally. I mean, basically, we're seeing Republicans freaking out all over the country. Younger people, working class people, and a growing non-white population is more likely in general to move left. But the Republicans, like the Democrats, have only moved further and further to the right for decades. 
So now these Tea Party right-wing extremists are legally out of control. Today's National Republican Party is a neo-fascist, white supremacist party that is consistently willing to act outside the law in order to maintain their grip on political power. And that is the definition of corruption, honestly. I think they should have been stopped a long time ago. Oh, most definitely should have been stopped a long time ago, but we've seen what happened with Trump. He managed to fool much of the working class with his populist rhetoric. His policies did nothing to improve the material conditions of the working class. The Republican Party should have died, you know, maybe with Bush, maybe with Reagan. I don't know. But definitely with Trump. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Democratic leaders like Biden and Pelosi have both said that we need a strong Republican Party. Yeah, they're constantly trying to revive the Republican Party, trying to convince them to hold themselves to some kind of a higher bar and appeal to their better angels as if they were somehow reformable. Yeah, it's totally a strategic move for the Democrats. They need a greater evil to compare themselves to. So their weak reformism seems like a contrast next to this neo-fascist, monstrous Republican Party. And we're back with Crawdads and Taters. Yay! Speaking of the strategic and slippery Democrats, let's move on to our anti-brunch in action. Mmm, brunch. No, no brunch for you. <laughs> what? I'm sorry, it's anti-brunch in time. No crepes for me today? No crepes. Oh. Anti-brunching. <laughs> okay. So, our revolution, moveon.org. Democrats, liberals of all stripes, and even many progressives like AOC are celebrating House Bill H.R. 1, known as the For the People Act, for its broad expansion of voting rights amidst the Republican attacks against them. Here's how Democracy Now! presented this story. The House of Representatives has approved the most sweeping voting rights bill in decades. The For the People Act, also known as House Resolution 1, passed Wednesday by a vote of 220 to 210, with every Republican opposing the bill. The legislation is aimed at improving voter registration and access to voting, ending partisan and racial gerrymandering, forcing the disclosure of dark money donors, increasing public funding for candidates, and imposing strict ethical and reporting standards on Congress members and members of the U.S. Supreme Court. The bill now heads to the Senate, where it's expected to be killed by Republicans unless all 50 Senate Democrats unite to end the filibuster. The House measure comes as voting rights are under attack in courthouses and statehouses across the country. So this H.R. 1 bill has a lot of good stuff in it, right? I mean, it's supposed to make it easier to vote and easier to register to vote. And it has a committee that fights gerrymandering. It requires political action committees to publicly disclose donors, which should discourage dark money. It provides matching funds for small donors, and it requires presidential candidates to disclose tax returns. It sounds like just the type of bill to counter all these Republican attacks on voting rights. So what's not to like about it? Yeah, so there is a lot to like in HR1. It would make ballot access easier for minorities. Um, in general, having more people participate in the democratic process, it's always a good thing. Mm -hmm. But what the liberal and even progressive media is not reporting is that HR1 contains poison pills that are direct assault on third parties. Hmm. 
You mentioned matching funds for small donors, but what isn't being reported is that HR1 requires five times the money for presidential candidates to get public matching funds. Currently, a third-party candidate needs $5,000 in each of 20 states for these matching funds, but HR1 raises the requirement to $25,000. What? $5,000 at $25,000? Yeah, that's a huge increase. I say five times the amount. Whoa. It also eliminates the provision that would allow third parties to access public funding by achieving 5% of the vote in a presidential election. A third party has won this 5% or more in 59 presidential elections since 1788. Hmm. Yeah. The last time this happened was with Ross Perot and the Reform Party in 1996. Hmm. And I just want to mention here my favorite third party candidate, Eugene V. Debs, who won 6% of the vote in 1912 running for the Socialist Party. Wow. So just to be clear, this is the Democratic Party authoring this bill writing all of these provisions that further diminish any possibility of a viable third-party challenge? Yes. Not just what I mentioned, but also for publicly funded presidential campaigns. It's going to eliminate the private funding caps, Hmm. which opens the door for more corporate donations. In recent election cycles, both Democratic and Republican Party candidates have refused public funding because by accepting it, it will trigger a $51.8 million campaign spending limit in the primaries. Wow. And it also meant that no private spending would be allowed in the general if they accepted these public funds. Oh, my gosh. So let me get this straight. As a presidential candidate, if you accept public funding, then the total amount you can spend on a presidential primary campaign is currently $51.8 million. But if you reject public funding then the sky's the limit in terms of private or corporate donations you can receive. And that's both for the primary and the general? Yes. So for the primary, and currently, if you accept any public funding, you can't spend any private money in the general. Wow. HR1 would remove both of these provisions Mm -hmm. so that there's no private funding caps for the primary or the general election. Wow. Do you know if Biden accepted public funding for the general election? No, Biden rejected public funding, and the Biden campaign spent $1.6 billion on the last presidential election. Wow. And this is in comparison, the Trump campaign also rejected public funding and spent almost $1.1 billion. So a bit less than Biden. Yeah, just just $400 million less or so. Yeah. (laughs) Just a bit. Wow. The, uh, the only party in the last election to uh, accept public funding was the Green Party. Of course. HR1 would uh, allow major party candidates to accept public grant money as well as having these unlimited private donations. Hmm. And this will really open the door for the corporate funded candidates to receive unlimited amounts of con- campaign contributions. Jeez. And not only this, but it also increases the amount of money national party committees can give to candidates from $5,000 to $100 million. This would give party bosses virtually unlimited power to flood elections with big money. Holy crap, that's insane. $5,000 to $100 million from national party committees, like the DNC and the RNC? Yeah. So basically, if HR1 passes, the Republican and Democratic national committees would be able to spend as much money as they want in order to buy candidates. They just blew the roof off those limits. I mean, this is like the Citizens United of National Party political spending. 
The DNC is already just a vehicle for channeling unlimited corporate dollars into electoral campaigns, but this would actually make it totally legal and out in the open. Yeah, it's incredible that they slipped this into HR1. Each party has three national committees, the national committee like the DNC or the RNC, the party's House and the Senate campaign committees. So in reality, this total contribution limit is going to go from $15,000 to $300 million. That's insane. And it's just incredible to me that no one in the media is talking about this except for the Green Party, as far as I know. Even Democracy Now!, which historically brings on all these muckrakers to talk about the dark sides of all the issues, has only said super positive things about HR1. And even AOC has been cheering it on and giving speeches about how great it is. It seems like the only entity that has given any voice to any of these concerns about third parties and private donations is the Green Party. Is that your understanding? Yeah, it is. And it's really crazy how there's hardly been a peep about it, even in the alternative media. I actually learned about it by reading an article in Counterpunch, which was written by the former Green Party presidential candidate, Howie Hawkins. We can put that Counterpunch article in the show notes. Yeah, we should. He really goes into great detail about the provisions that we just briefly covered. And these provisions that really severely hinder any third party efforts going forward. Wow. Well, let's talk about third parties for a minute because, you know, a lot of the liberal Democrats I know, when they even hear about third parties competing with the Democratic Party, especially like in general elections, totally freak out. And they have this attitude like, well, good riddance. We don't need those spoilers anyway. Obviously, you and I don't share that perspective, but maybe we should take a minute to talk about it. Why do you think it's important to have third parties in the first place? It's true what you said. Um, Actually, Medicare for All activist A.D. Barkin, he cheered when the Green Party was ruled ineligible for the ballot in Wisconsin. In reality, third parties are really important. This what H.R. 1 is doing and removing third parties from the ballot. It's a form of voter suppression. The Green Party in 2020, they were running on an eco-socialist platform. They had Medicare for All, a Green New Deal. You know, policies that everyone should have the option to vote for. Yeah. In fact, a recent Gallup poll, a January Gallup poll, showed that 50% of U.S. adults identify as independent, not Democrat or Republican. And 62% of U.S. adults say that a third party is needed. So you have more than half of all people, all adults in the U.S. identifying as independent This idea of forcing everyone into one of two corporate parties is a total joke, really. I mean, in terms of representing what the people want, actual small d democracy. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those independents now since I dropped my Democratic Party registration after the the convention. (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah, 50%. That's half, half the country. A majority of the population, 62%, wants a viable third party. A majority wants Medicare for all. So why don't we have these things? And these poison pills in HR1, they just go to show the lengths that the Democrats are going to go to prevent the rise of a viable third party. Yeah. You know, this whole HR1 thing is so par for the course of corporate politics in our country. And lately, I've kind of been just thinking about this dynamic and how it seems like the Democratic solution to a neo-fascist takeover of government is always to offer up bills that seem to be the exact opposite of what Republicans are trying to do. 
But in fact, in some way, they end up reinforcing the very type of ruling class corporate control of politics that always deprives the public of having its basic needs met. And of course, over time, this leads to greater and greater levels of desperation in the public. And at least for the right wing, it leads to willingness to support despotic faux populists like Trump. Yeah, and Trump actually increased his vote totals in the 2020 election. Wow, to like 70 million, right? Something like that. Yeah, like record number of votes for either candidate. Yeah. So this is the dynamic. I mean, we have these corrupt politicians like Brian Kemp and like Trump who bust into office, belligerently breaking laws, nobody stops them, threatening women and people of color, nobody stops them, threatening basic voting rights, telling outright lies, amassing right-wing militias, arresting congresswomen who knock on their doors, and otherwise assaulting democracy on a daily basis, and nobody stops them. And then finally, the Democrats introduce bills like H.R. 1 to ostensibly save the day, but which end up strengthening the corporate duopoly and reinforcing the stranglehold that the two capitalist parties have on electoral politics. Yep, that's what they're doing. Yay, capitalism! (laughs) God damn it. Isn't it great having two corporate parties? It's so great. No need for third parties in this system. No, no, that's not important to have these third parties, which is why we've got HR1. (laughs) And if you notice the the reforms in HR1, they're not really long-term structural reforms. Yeah. When they pass anything, the Democrats pass bills that could easily be repealed by a future Republican administration. Mm. And their proposed reforms, they don't include systemic changes. You know, HR1 could include ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting, yeah. It could include multi-party proportional representation in Congress. Mm. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. This would give us a real chance at small-D democracy. Yep. This is a perfect example of how the Democratic Party operates. They continue to offer up these weak reforms. They don't address the real problems. You know, it's great that HR1 is going to expand voter access, mm-hmm. but it's useless if the only two options are between the two supporters of neoliberalism, like Trump or Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, Boss Tweed once said, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating. <laughs> Boss Tweed. <laughs> Who's Boss Tweed? He was a uh, Tammany Hall boss back in the 1800s, and he was basically the Debbie Washerman Schultz of the day. Oh, wow. Very good at rigging elections. Um, he ended up dying in prison, which we can all hope happens to Debbie Washerman Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> no comment, no comment. <laughs> Well, yeah, this is so true. And meanwhile, the corporate liberal media is always performing its dutiful role as setting up this good versus evil scenario where the Republican boogeyman is so hyped up as the source of all evil that anyone who dares oppose the Democratic solution to the problem is then painted as some kind of Trump enabler for even attempting to widen the political debate. That's happened to me numerous times. All the time, like on a daily basis. Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. And this is where we see that the corporate media largely acts as a megaphone for the ruling class. I mean, they would like us to keep the main divisions in our society as left versus right so that we fail to notice the more structural economic divisions of top versus bottom. I really see this as a covert class war, which enables both capitalist parties to limit the range of political debate and quietly continue their assault on third party politics while no one reports on it, 
well, except for maybe the Green Party. So hats off to you, Howie Hawkins. All right. Yeah, good for Howie for actually bringing up these poison pills. I mean, we wouldn't know about it if the Green Party hadn't brought them to a light. Yep. Yeah, this is a perfect mirror of what's happened to leftists who refuse to vote for Biden. Yes. You know, Trump's the boogeyman. Ooh, big scary Trump. Orange man bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, so many people were just coerced by the liberal establishment and the corporate media to support the lesser evil without ever addressing these deep structural issues, you know, constantly pushing us closer and closer to fascism. And what we're describing here is basically the ratchet effect. Mm-hmm. You know, Republicans are moving further right and further right. And then Democrats block progress back to the left. Yeah. And we just keep seeing this scenario over and over again, where leftists are coerced into swallowing these poison pills because the enemy just keeps getting worse Ooh, and worse. Orange man bad. <laughs> well, I mean, he is. He's terrible. I mean, let's be honest. He's absolutely terrible. And something worse is coming. I think, I think something worse could easily be coming. Yeah. Who's that Josh Howley guy? Right. And we're not, but here's the thing, like we're not even allowed to recognize or debate what the real poison is in HR one, for example, because if we did, we'd be sabotaging the democratic establishments pretense of being a real opposition party, but predictably their resistance, their quote resistance always fails and we always end up moving further and further to the right and towards fascism all the time. Oh, yeah, it's awful. I think Tom Cotton's another potential candidate. Mm-hmm. Was it Candace Owens, I think, was talking about oh, potentially running? Oh, God. And that would rip apart the uh, liberal identity politics. Oh, it totally would destroy <laughs> the liberal identity politics. <laughs> Speaking of Candace Owens, do you remember how during the 2020 Republican National Convention, how many of the Republican headliners were African-American? Which uh, Republican National Convention, the first one or the second one? There were two? Well, they nominated Biden in the first one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. <laughs> then I mean the second one. Oh, the Trump one. Yes, okay. the Trump one. And even there, they like all their headliners were African American. Did you notice that? Yeah, they pulled out everybody, even though you know African Americans only represented less than five percent of Republican voters in 2019. Right, which just shows you that the fact that Candace Owens thinks she even has a chance at running for president indicates how Republicans are gaining ground with this identity politics strategy. And if she succeeds, it will reveal just how superficial this whole strategy has become for both Republicans and Democrats in terms of using racial identity to replace any kind of real class-based politics. So yeah, if we're going to prevent fascism, we need to do something about this and draw attention to it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why it's important. You know, we have a podcast like Crawdads and Taters. Mm -hmm. So we can have a safe space to point out all these real threats of fascism and how the democracy is being attacked and curtailed by corporate Democrats, the corporate class in general, which is constantly narrowing our political options by moving the entire political debate further and further to the corporate right. Corporations are always going to win in this system and people are always going to lose. Yeah. And by moving the entire debate further and further to the corporate right, you've basically just described the Overton window, which works hand in hand with the ratchet effect. 
yeah, this consistent push to the right means that a centrist Democrat today, like Joe Biden, you know, he would have been considered a moderate Republican in the 1980s. Yeah, that's right. And here's actually a clip of Obama who admits this about himself. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, is that uh, my policies are so mainstream that, you know, if if I had said the same policies that I have back in the 1980s, uh, I'd be considered a moderate Republican. Exactly. Even Obama recognizes that the U.S. political culture has shifted so far to the right in recent decades that by a 1980 standard, he would be considered a moderate Republican. And just a quick tangent on this, if you do a YouTube search for Obama and Reagan, you will find dozens of clips where Obama compares his policy proposals to Ronald Reagan's, pointing out how similar they are, from tax code to immigration reform, and both Barack and Michelle were constantly lavishing praise on Nancy Reagan. The Obamas loved the Reagans. I'm not the first president to call for this idea that everybody's got to do their fair share. Some years ago, one of my predecessors traveled across the country pushing for the same concept. He gave a speech where he talked about a letter he had received from a wealthy executive who paid uh, lower tax rates than his secretary and wanted to come to Washington and tell Congress why that was wrong. So this president gave another speech where he said it was crazy, that's a quote, that certain tax loopholes make it possible for multimillionaires to pay nothing while a bus driver was paying 10% of his salary. Uh, that wild-eyed socialist tax-hiking class warrior uh, was Ronald Reagan. We're going to close the unproductive tax loopholes that have allowed some of the truly wealthy to avoid paying their fair share. In theory, some of those loopholes were understandable, but in practice, they sometimes made it possible for millionaires to pay nothing while a bus driver was paying 10% of his salary, and that's crazy. It's time we stopped it. He thought that in America, the wealthiest should pay their fair sh share, and he said so. I know that position might disqualify him from the re Republican primaries these days. But what Ronald Reagan was calling for then is the same thing that we're calling for now, a return to basic fairness and responsibility, everybody doing their part. So Obama liked to compare himself to Reagan in order to point out to Republicans how far to the right they had moved in recent decades. Yeah, wild-eyed socialist Reagan. Right, wild-eyed socialist Reagan. I mean, all he wants is like fair, fair taxes for the wealthy, right? Yeah, who doesn't want to tax the rich. Right. I mean, I'm sure most Democrats today would totally agree with that. But ironically, when Obama was pointing out to Republicans how far to the right they had moved, he was also inadvertently pointing out to the rest of us how far to the right he had moved as a Democrat. I mean, really? Comparing himself to Reagan on tax policy? That's insane. Any sober-eyed 1980s Democrat would recognize that the Reagan administration was single-handedly responsible for increasing levels of income and wealth inequality into a kind of class war unknown to the United States in the modern era. I mean, under Reagan, we saw a widening of the wealth gap between the rich and the poor. We saw constant assaults on labor unions, a dramatic increase in poverty and homelessness, and the privatization and deregulation of the financial industry that ultimately led to the 2008 mortgage crisis and recession. Many sociologists have written about this. 
Wait, so Redken was responsible for the 2008 mortgage crisis? <laughs> <laughs> he got the ball rolling. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. It's been a steady downward slope since Reagan. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, here's how um, Peter Dreyer of The Nation magazine described this. Quote, Reagan is often lauded as the great communicator, but what he often communicated were lies and distortions. For example, during his stump speeches, while dutifully promising to roll back welfare, Reagan often told the story of a so-called welfare queen in Chicago who drove a Cadillac and had ripped off $150,000 from the government using 80 aliases, 30 addresses, a dozen social security cards, and four fictional dead husbands. <laughs> four dead husbands, okay. Journalists searched for this welfare cheat in the hopes of interviewing her and discovered that she didn't exist. You don't say. This phony imagery of welfare cheats persisted and helped lay the groundwork for cuts to programs that help the poor, including children. Reagan's most famous statement, government is not a solution to our problem, government is the problem, has become the unofficial slogan for the recent resurgence of right-wing extremism. The rants of Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh, the lunacy of the Tea Party, the policy ideas promulgated by propaganda outfits like the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, masquerading as think tanks, and the takeover of the Republican Party by its most conservative wing were all incubated during the Reagan years. Mm -hmm. Indeed, they all claimed to be carrying out the Reagan revolution, end quote. <laughs> yeah, that's a great Peter Dreyer quote. And I mean, my God, the fact that they just invented, that Reagan invented these four dead husbands and this welfare queen scam just shows you like how he was trying to go after people's fears, you know, uh, very racialized fears, I might add, of what a welfare queen is, what she looks like, and who's eating up all your tax money. The fact that Obama constantly compares himself to Reagan and even openly admires and praises him just shows how far to the right main mainstream Democrats have moved, along with Republicans. And this is the Overton window in action. Yep. That story of Reagan reminds me that Biden wrote an article in 1988 where he warned of welfare queens driving luxury cars. I wonder where he got that. God, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder how he came up with that. I mean, it just goes to show that even then Biden was a Reagan Democrat. The Republican Party of Reagan would be so proud of the Democratic Party of today. Oh, I'm sure they would be. Yeah. Obama loved Reagan. Biden was a Reagan Democrat, and you know this whole HR one bill, just one of hundreds of examples of how both parties introduce legislation and fail to oppose legislation that constantly ratchets our U.S. political system to the corporate right and moves the Overton window to the right with it. Thanks so much for listening to Crawdads and Taters. If you like this kind of non-corporate independent analysis, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And please consider becoming a monthly subscriber at Patreon.com slash crawdads and taters because even though we're anti-capitalists we still have to eat and pay bills even the smallest monthly donation allows us to continue and remember always be anti-fascist and anti-bruncheon crawdads and taters is a self-produced and directed production by aaron mccarley and burian sundahl you can find us on spotify apple podcasts breaker Castbox, google podcasts overcast pocket casts and radio public Honey, hey, 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 hey,